Welcome to Just a GP. My name is Ashley Broomfield and I'm here with Beck Hoffman and Charlotte Hesby, our usual hosts. Today on Just a GP, we're talking to Alison Hempenstall. Did I say that correctly, Alison? Uh, yep. Alison received the Rural Registrar of the Year Award last year and has also received a scholarship to study a Masters of Public Health overseas. She works in the Torres Straits as a GP registrar, about to fellow in a couple of months, and is has a passion for education. So welcome on the podcast, Alison. Thanks so much, Ashley, for having me. Alison, before we continue on to our highlights of the week, could you give us a bit of a summary about who you are and um, what you're all about? So I'm, I suppose I'm just uh, another GP, um, but I feel like I could say that I'm a, a GP on steroids. I feel like I've got the best job in the world. I work up on Thursday Island and service the entire Torres Straits, and I get to work as both a primary care physician, providing um, continuity of care and long-term management of patients here on Thursday Island as well as other islands, and I also get to do some emergency care as well, which really spices up my job. And what was your highlight this week? My highlight was a highlight for everyone here on Thursday Island. The rains have finally come. It's been like almost two months overdue and the storms and the heavy rains have finally arrived. Uh, Everyone is just breathing a huge sigh of relief. Wow, that sounds so good. It's lovely, isn't it, the rain? We, can I say we had had rain last week in Sydney and it was just awesome. Mm, and they're starting to receive rain out in the western New South Wales as well, which is quite nice. And for us in New South Wales, it's been such a relief having some water with all the fires and the smoke in the air. Mm. What was your highlight, Charlotte? Um, my, my highlight's probably a bit more boring in many respects, but um, I had the joy of spending a whole day Uh, with women in a room. Can you imagine? It was just a room full of women who were interested in leadership in boards. And so there were women from across all sorts of sectors um, of the community who just wanted to sort of understand better about how to be good leaders and how to use their skills in a boardroom. And, yep, just very stimulating and some fantastic um, hints really as to how, how to how to use our skills better. How did you get into that? Well, um, I'm always on the lookout for anything that I think is useful in terms of leadership, and particularly with women, because I'm I really want to try and help women take more of a proactive role in leadership. And I saw this course come up from company directors and thought it was completely. Um, just read well and can I say it was fantastic there was some it was all evidence-based lots of research and fascinating in terms of looking at techniques for being able to use skills um, in a way that actually achieves better outcomes. Awesome we may have to get you to do a bit of chatting on the on, on the podcast today Charlotte about some of your top tips from that. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. And Beck. Um, my highlight of the week is um, 
actually I'm really excited about. My little boy is starting school on Monday for the first time ever. He goes into kindy and he is so excited. He's done some short days this week and he has smashed it. And then on Monday, we start a whole new chapter of our lives having a primary school child, which is a bit horrifying, but definitely a highlight. A sign of ageing maybe, Beck. Oh, horrible. No. <laughs> yeah, children don't let you forget that you're ageing. No. <laughs> and yours, Ash? I've held on to my highlight for a whole week just so I could share it today. So <laughs> I was going to message Charlotte and say, Charlotte, I found this new thing and I think you'd really like it and I've had to kind of hold off on texting her about how excited I was about it because I wanted to to bring it to the, the podcast and share it with a wider audience. Um, I, I found a new pair of running shoes that are awesome in terms of they really work nicely with the way that my foot strike works and they're really comfortable and they're kind of really nice to to run in and they look cool as well. So I don't know if you've heard of the brand Ons, but I got the On Cloud Flows and they're superb. Never heard of them. On Cloud Flows. So they're on. Okay. Oh, and yeah, it's a Swiss brand and um, they they have little kind of rubber speed bumps with a little gap in the middle and they they give you that sensation of quite a lot of cushioning when you hit the ground but they don't feel too too cushiony you know they feel quite um, firm and but you get a lot of bounce and it's, it's really good I'll send you the link yes please that sounds good I'm in for some trying to find some good shoes again because I've got um I've, I've put myself in one of my challenges for this year for my well-being is to do another half marathon I'm doing the great ocean road coming up so I'm pretty excited about that so has anyone got any starting questions for Alison uh, I'd love to ask Alison what took you to the Torres Strait Islander is that the area um, of, New, of, of Australia is that because you were passionate about that area did you grow up there or was it a def, you know just like one of those lucky moments it's a question that people often ask me I think because it's such a unique part of Australia and not one that a lot of people often come by I um, I tell the story of when I was an intern and I went to a small hospital in country Victoria and worked in an emergency department that was run by a rural generalist. And when we wouldn't have many patients in the emergency department, he would bring out a ukulele and start playing a ukulele. And I was so entranced by it. I asked him one day how we learnt to play this instrument. And he said he'd learned to play it when he was working up on Thursday Island. And I have to admit, geography is not my strong point. I hadn't really heard of much about the place up until then. And so I got to learn all about his experience when he was working as a doctor up here many years ago. And it just sound, so, sounded so amazing. So as a result, I deliberately got a job at Cairns Base Hospital because I knew that as a junior doctor, I could do a rotation up on Thursday Island. So a number of years ago, I came up here as a resident and had a couple months here working out at the emergency department. And I think it, it completely solidified uh, my desire to want to come back and work here long time. I still think it's the most fascinating place to work in Australia because 
not only do you have amazing tropical diseases that you don't see in other parts of Australia, but you have such a rich, diverse culture of Torres Strait Islanders that have sort of come from um, Malaysia and Japan and the South Pacific and all sort of this has become a melting pot of multiple different cultures that have all transformed into the Torres Strait Island culture. And so you've got the, the medicine, the culture, and then this really interesting dynamic of being the only place in Australia that borders on um, another country, Papua New Guinea, and Papua New, Gu New Guinea being a very resource poor and developing country presents us with whole new challenges of managing PNG nationals who come across the border, providing healthcare for them, and sort of having to put a whole new set of thinking caps on when they come across because they're unvaccinated and there's a huge different collection of diseases that they have over here that we don't have here in Australia. That, um, that makes my job just so interesting every single day. So I haven't regretted it after I had my rotation as a junior doctor and I went away for a few years and did a, a few other um, bits and pieces before coming back to do my primary care training just over two years ago. Cool. And so in terms of then the rotations that you've done, tell me how that took you into them wanting to do a Masters of Public Health. What was it about that experience that opened you to seeing general practice, ruralism, public health? I think I've always had an interest in, in public health um, and it probably fueled partially my desire to come up and work in an environment here where public health has such a big role in how we provide healthcare to this region and also to the PNG nationals that come across the border. So the short answer is... Um, after I finish primary care training, I'm going to go on and do my um, public health physician training and you require a Masters of Public Health. And I've always been interested in doing it overseas because I think you get this really enriched experience learning from a different culture and a different setting and have this sort of unique lens back on your own country by experiencing um, health and education in other countries. And so I wanted to do my Master's of Public Health overseas for, for many years. And now that I've finished my GP training, I'm really privileged to get the opportunity to do my Master's of Public Health in the States. Awesome. So then, so then you're going to go into public health training. So tell me you're not going to leave behind these, you know, you're not going to lose your wonderful rural skills. I think that's what's so nice about any any primary care work. It's a career path that is so flexible and accommodating to people's other interests, be it medical education or research or a, another dual specialty. Um, there's just an element of flexibility in primary care that I don't think you get with a lot of other specialties or if you do, you've got to wait lots and lots of years before you finish your training to do so. And I think the two meld so well together. So sitting in my uh, GP office here on Thursday Island, I get to provide healthcare to individuals that come in and out my door and really at a grassroots level understand the issues that are affecting the community that I serve. And then to combine that with a public health approach where you're looking at the whole population and the whole community, I think you have a better, um, 
a, be- a better ability to provide good public health policy and changes if you've had that experience at a grassroots level. So I think the two work perfectly together. Fantastic from my perspective. What I'm fascinated in is, I mean, as someone who just loves this public health aspect of being the GP and being the generalist, because I think we look at things in a different way when we look at the whole of everybody and the whole of the system. And you're talking about this, the joy of bringing in the unexpected with the Papua New Guinea um, sort of healthcare issues too. What are the things about um, that we can sort of take on board as GPs that Thursday Island specifically demonstrates or is that too hard a question? What kind of skills do you mean? Well, yeah, I mean, what are the challenges of Thursday Island apart from, I mean, for you, it's that you've described so beautifully the joy of it just being so interesting and um, exciting. So, so, but where, what, are, what are the generalist skill sets that we bring specifically to that sort of environment? I suppose doing any primary care training through either college you learn to care for, like you said, Charlotte, the whole patient instead of just a particular facet of um, a patient. And I think being up here on Thursday Island, we have to rely so much more on our clinical acumen. Having worked in big emergency departments in other places throughout Australia, we rely more heavily on blood tests and imaging. And they're things that we don't have up here which makes it all the more challenging, but it also gives us an opportunity to refine and hone our clinical skills, which is something that I'm sure many GPs throughout all of Australia and beyond do in their clinics every day, you know, making the decision as to whether or not to order a scan, whether or not to move them to an emergency department or refer them on to a specialist, all comes down to really taking that history and a physical examination. And that's not to say that investigations don't have their place in healthcare, absolutely they do. But we have a pathology lab here that only runs during business hours. After hours, we have to rely on small ISTAT machines. We have an X-ray and some great ultrasound sonographers. but we don't have a CT machine. And so we have to rely so much more on the information that we get from the patient in addition with those limited investigations to make decisions about their health care and their management. I've got a question that is probably controversial, but uh, it's something that I often think about when, when people make the decision to go to a remote place, particularly early in their career um, and away from friends and family. Um, I assume that you don't, you didn't know anyone in the Torres Strait before you went up there. And, and how was that for you and, and how has it changed? I think I was so lucky to have come up for that three-month stint as a junior doctor because three months is pretty manageable for most people and I got to know the doctors that were living here at the time, most of whom are still here. So when I moved back here a few years later, they were still here and I had this community that I was coming back into and I think that helped make the transition so much easier for me knowing what I was Um, what I was getting myself in for but in saying that that doesn't take away the challenge of being away from family and being away from friends 
And I think I manage that by talking a lot on the phone. I'm always on the phone talking with friends or family or emailing or texting them. And I think we're so lucky uh, in today's advent of amazing technology that we can do that with such ease. I also get off the island regularly. It's funny that people talk about this concept of going tropo up here and it sounds like a bit of a myth but it actually can happen. It's quite often that I'll see patients and they're, and they're just, uh, you know, not their normal selves. And these generally these patients are um, people who have not been born and have grown up here. So people who are from the mainland who have come to work here on Thursday Island. And I think after a little while, it's important to get off the island and, and go and get your fix of going to a supermarket or a a shopping centre, seeing a movie, catching up with friends, having a, a meal at a restaurant. I know they sound like little little things, but actually they're really important for your health and well-being and being able to recognise when you might be going a bit troppo or, or feeling as though it's, uh, you know, getting a little bit too much is so important to then be able to do something about it. I absolutely agree. And I really like the idea of going tropo and being able to get away from it as well. Um, I would like to jump into one of your other areas of interest to have a bit of a chat. Um, we were talking before about how you were interested in medical education and I want to know what medical education looks like in the Torres Strait and whether the students are doing placement up there with you or whether you're doing distance education or exactly what it is, what you do and how you got into it, what you love about it, that type of thing. I've always liked medical education and um, I think that's uh, hereditary. My grandfather was a teacher and both my parents were teachers and so I think there's this um, inherent educator in me. Um, we have fourth year and final year James Cook University medical students who come up here on placement and they're rotated up every couple of months. And then, of course, there are other medical students through the Taurus and Cape, including Bamaga Weeper, Cooktown Mossman. And so I do a combination of face-to-face -face teaching with the James Cook University students that are here on Thursday Island. And I usually do weekly teaching with them as well as dialing in and having um, Bamaga tele-link into the sessions. And then I do teaching with fourth-year medical students that are all throughout the Taurus and Cape. So I'll have a couple of students from Mossman, a couple from Weeper, one or two from Bamiga, some on TI and some in Cooktown. And we use technology and hop on a platform called Zoom, which I'm sure you're, you're um, all familiar with. And we, I can see all their little faces on the screen and they can see me and we share a PowerPoint and we talk about cases and we go through learning objectives and they give presentations. And I think it's only through fantastic technology that we have these days that we're able to branch out from your typical education scenario where you have a teacher standing in front of a whiteboard and students sitting down at a desk. We're able to sort of breach those boundaries of distance. Isn't it wonderful 
what um, technology can do. I mean, I think one of the I've just done a workshop today looking at um, using a technology, well, a, a, a platform called Echo, which also uses Zoom, and just the the whole sort of social networking power of teaching in a group, hearing voices, sharing stories and patient scenarios is so powerful to actually improve what we do and how we operate. Yeah, definitely. And if it's something that I think we underutilize, we could be having medical education that crosses across different countries with perhaps regions and remote areas in different parts of the world that don't have the same kind of medical educators or educators in general on the ground. Yep. That would be great, wouldn't it? But I mean, it certainly is a, a very valid and doable way of teaching in the for the rural remote areas. And, you know, there's lots of ways we could be innovative and, um, you know, and show, make use of those opportunities to really teach well. Definitely. Alison, why do you think that you received the Rural Registrar of the Year Award? What was it that stood out of the things that you did? I know it's really hard talking about yourself, but sometimes it's really nice for people listening to hear about all the pretty amazing stuff that other GPs are out there doing. I'm, to be honest, I'm not quite sure um, if there was one particular thing that, um, that resulted in me getting the Rural Registrar of the Year Award, and I'm very grateful for receiving it. I wonder if it was the research that I've been doing up here, which is, again, something that I'm really interested in and ties in with um, the public health interest that I have, especially in this area. So research historically in the Torres Straits, as with lots of other Indigenous communities across Australia and other countries, have has kind of looked like the following scenario. A big university or um, research institute has a whole lot of money, thinks that they're going to do the the right thing by First Nations people coming into their community, taking a whole lot of information um, and personal data about them and going back to wherever they come from and probably publishing a lot of that research but not actually communicating that back with the community that they've come from. And it might not have actually been on the community's agenda to research that particular area. And so it's been so important that the research that I've been working on up here has been in collaboration with the community and has really been driven by the community. So over the past 12 months, we've been looking at skin infections up here in the Taurus. And we know that cellulitis is the number one preventable hospital admission here on Thursday Island Hospital. And most of those patients who come into the hospital are retrieved from other islands because they're unwell with with cellulitis. If you can imagine that one inter-hospital transfer or one retrieval from an outer island costs over $20,000 of a retrieval helicopter and then you've got $2,000 a day as an inpatient. That's a lot of money for a condition that has been well, um, has been proven to be managed safely and effectively in the community. 
So unlike other hospital in the home programs across Australia, where if the patient becomes a little bit more sick, they can hop into an ambulance and drive to the nearest hospital. We can't necessarily do that all the time because our communities are separated by bodies of water. So what I wanted to look at, and this was really driven by a lot of the other staff and um, community leaders here in the Torres Straits, was if it is possible to run a hospital in the home-like program to manage moderate cellulitis in the community instead of bringing them into the hospital, saving the hospital a lot of money, but also keeping the community members in their community. So we've just finished 12 months of data collection and we're really excited to be analysing it now um, and we'll have the results over the, over the coming months. But that's had a lot of involvement and engagement by the community and the majority of the research was undertaken and data collection by um, the first ever Indigenous research officer that we employed here uh, over the course of last year, as well as health workers and nurses on the outer islands. So it's been a huge team approach. Um, it's been a very grassroots project and community driven. And I just wonder if that kind of approach to research is a little bit more sustainable, especially in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. And it might be the reason why I got the Registrar of the Year Award. That sounds awesome, Alison. I totally agree with you. I think one of the criticisms of a lot of the body of research that we do have in medicine is that it's not necessarily fit for primary care and the communities that we do work in because it's done in different either specialist based settings or um, the the research questions haven't come from the problems in the community and address specific community needs. And I love that even though you are addressing your community's specific needs, that the potential results of your research project could be extrapolated to other communities that aren't as remote as well. You know, imagine if we could extrapolate that research so that it, it becomes more widespread in terms of the ability to manage it in resource poor settings, then it's much easier to manage in general practice in the same way that um, hydrolyte and management of gastroenteritis in young children has become has come from research in research poor uh, sorry resource resource poor settings and then now it's used widespread in mainstream medicine and can i add I mean, and i also love the fact that it is actually it's it's active participant research it matters to the community they understand why it matters and they will be so proud of the results which will then enable them to sort of know that, that how they then approach any other problems as well it's just a great um, community exercise that everybody can learn from I think it really benefits the relationship between the community and the medical profession as well it bridges that gap of that you know not having a paternalistic approach to healthcare it's a collaborative and it's a relationship rather than a top-down problem it's been so wonderful to involve the whole community in throughout the past 12 months and it included some health promotion events, one of which was creating a hip hop video about healthy skin with um, 
some young children from all the different outer islands who had come in for a footy carnival and we were able to um, work with them to create in local language a hip-hop video about how to keep your skin healthy. So there have been other elements to this project involving the community that have just been so wonderful and I would have never imagined would uh, I would have described creating a hip-hop video as doing research, but it's the way that information, you know, wants to be delivered by the local community here. Fantastic. So much fun as well. It's a fabulous video to watch. It's got all these kids that are, that are you know, across all different beautiful landscapes of um, Thursday Island where it was filmed, and they're all singing in the hip-hop video, which is in Creole, the local language here. Uh, it's it's a real hoot and we've been able to put it on the local radio station as well. So as kids are driving home from school, they're having a listen to their peers who have created this video about healthy skin. I think there'll be more than one person wanting to watch it. <laughs> I will, I will. And I was going to say, can you please tell me that is online somewhere that we can look up and link to the podcast? Because I would love to watch that. That sounds so cool. Oh, that's a great idea. Shall we do a bit of a sideline here and quiz Charlotte on the, her top tips from leadership? Yes, please. Quick summary, please, Charlotte. No, uh, something you prepared earlier, <laughs> perhaps? Oh, okay. I mean, I think that one of the things that I was interested in is that in terms of looking at the sorts of some of the things that you can do when you're looking at being a better leader and making a difference is actually knowing that, you know, being being confident about your personal proficiency and about being ready to lead, which I think, um, interestingly, Alison touched on earlier at one point, sort of saying that she wasn't good at selling herself. So it's about, you know, just having a little bit of confidence about yourself. Um, but there are some short-term things that we can do that actually help. One is to actually be the performer. So to be a good leader, you actually have to do the stuff and make things happen. Um, and I think Alison is very much demonstrating that for us, um, that you need to effectively communicate and engage the people around you. Um, and then in terms of longer term, it's about actually thinking about the succession planning. So who who are the people that we want to work with us and make sure they're upskilled as we're working and actually planning about where we're going, so actually having a strategy. So, And I sort of like that. It's sort of about having confidence in yourself, going out doing it, communicate it, engage people around you and then actually um, pulling in the people around you and upskilling them as you go. And that's that whole thing about, you know, it isn't just about me. It isn't just about it being somebody else. It's that whole sort of long-term plan. Does that sound, um, make sense? It does. And I, I really, I can see that that's one of your passions, Charlotte, is doing succession planning. And I think what I've noticed watching you in in progress is that succession planning early is a lot more important than trying to succession plan when you're at the end of your career. And I think that that's really cool because what it does is it creates a community of people around you that are colleagues that become a resource as well as team members and then people who can take over. And we talk about it on the podcast where 
once you sometimes step into a leadership position or you become someone who says yes a lot, it then becomes really hard to say no because you become a go-to person for certain things. And I like the way that if you do succession planning as part of your leadership plan and you do that from the beginning of your career, you actually create this wealth of community colleague resources where you can kind of share the work and share the load and and work with each other rather than um, trying to push up and beyond your limits and then burning out because of it. Absolutely. And and also too, working with the people that you want to work with is actually, you know, obviously going to be far more engaging for everybody anyway. And then the, the final thing is actually polish your strengths. Don't focus on your weaknesses. I think a lot of the time we sort of look at what we're weak at and then, you know, maybe go and try and upskill it. But instead of go, actually, this is what I'm really good at. That's that's fine. Really go with it and then bring people along with you that you know are good in the areas that you're not so good at. Mm. Yeah, I like that too. And I like the word polish your skills. You know, if, if you're if you're good at doing something and it can be refined in a certain way, then that sounds better than fixing something that's wrong with you. Absolutely. And so then on that front is having the self-awareness and there was this nice um, little take-home message which was that the number one muscle that leaders need to develop is to build self-awareness. So to have that heightened awareness of the self and to get their own personal house in order because if you can do that, then any team will follow you um, and the team that you can do will be able to collectively then help you build what your strategy is. So it's get your house in order um, is part of that sort of polishing your skills. They're great tips. Thanks, Charlotte. I'm actually thinking about a group that Alice and I, Alison and I are part of um, that are currently toying with the idea about writing an article. And the thing which I really like about that group is that people dip in and out of it when they're able to and when they have time. And so it's a group of people all interested in the same topic and every now and again one or two people will do an awful lot of work for it as you can and then we'll step back and someone else will carry the next stage and I've not collaborated in that way before when I've collaborated on other projects it's been very timeline driven and we have to get it done and everybody's on board now and I haven't particularly enjoyed those collaborations as much can I say Um, but I've really loved the idea of when you've got time and you've got availability and you've got a passion, you'll make it work. And when you can't, you can step back and then you can come back to it again. And I really enjoyed that. So you've tantalised us. What's the group? <laughs> um, so it is, and I probably can talk about it. We, uh, yeah, so we're currently having a look at gender equity on boards, particularly on hospital boards and local health district boards around Australia to have a look at the number of both the numbers of females that sit on the boards, the number of females who are in leadership positions on those boards and the number of doctors who are females who are in leadership positions on those boards. Um, And Broadly speaking, we're doing well as females in some of those aspects, 
but quite terribly in others. I think you guys have spoken on other podcast podcast episodes that even though we've reached parity uh, between medical students and we probably have more female medical students graduating than male medical students these days, that's not really reaching these top leadership positions such as CEOs or deans of medical schools. And I think there's only between, in Australia, 12 to 20% of females in those positions nationwide despite having reached gender parity in medical schools. So can you give us a bit of a background on how you were able to collaborate in terms of the the platform and how you met each other and what made it easy to collaborate rather than it being task and timeline driven? The power of Twitter, Ashley, the power of Twitter. Um, it, this all stemmed from a question posed by the Medical Journal of Australia last year that put out to their readers whether or not there was um, equity in leadership positions, gender equity amongst leadership positions um, in the health sphere, which of course there is substantial evidence to support that there isn't. And so Beck and I were part of a larger group of about 29 women and one men who wrote and published an article to the Medical Journal of Australia highlighting the ongoing inequity there is in gender in the healthcare sector and especially in leadership positions. I remember the article and they, I think the MGA then did a podcast with some women who were in leadership positions and they were all specialists. None of them were GPs. So, oh, no. Yeah, I know. Um, and But what I'm thinking but is... Isn't everyone a specialist, Ash? Oh, you know, yes. That... You know what I mean, though. As in, I absolutely know what you mean. <laughs> what I'm just, I'm with you is that the, but then the generalist doesn't get seen to be the specialist. And so, what relevance do we have in this conversation? Yeah. I'm not going to go. There. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was more thinking, how did you, what platforms did you use to assist in the collaboration? So, I guess since then, our answer is still technology, most all technology driven, in that we use WhatsApp for a running commentary on what's happening when. We use um, Google Docs for our um, article or our data, which is in progress, that anybody can dip in and out of and edit. And it's just a document that everybody who's contributing can contribute to. And then we use Zoom as a meeting platform when we do decide to have deadlines and exciting things. Cool. Now we have to finish up um, now because we have another uh, interview soon. And what I would like to finish with is resources of the week. So perhaps we start with you, Beck. Yeah, well, I might segue about talking about the wonders of technology into a resource of the week, which is online. And one I've actually been using with my medical students a lot this week is the Western Australian Imaging Pathways, which is um, a online free resource, which is beautifully set out where you can search through body systems, um, essentially what imaging would be required for either a pathology or a clinical presentation and it's all 
evidence-based, you click through, have a look at um, things based on age or their symptoms, and then they decide whether imaging is or even isn't warranted, which is really nice, is that they'll often say, no, it's not needed, but also then if it is needed, what the appropriate test is to do. And it is very nice to have something evidence-based to help you when you're not quite sure. That sounds fabulous. So my resource of the week is actually an app. It's a free app, which was created by the Menzies School of Health Research, and it's called the Hep B Story app. Um, And it's free to download, and it contains all these short videos in either simple English or Yungumata, one of the languages in Nullumboy in the Northern Territory, where you can explain what chronic hepatitis B is, um, how you how you it's transmitted, how it's treated, and what kind of follow-up you need with your GP. It's really helpful little cat, little videos for patients to either download and go through themselves with their family or for you to sit in the GP clinic and go through with them uh, individually. So I find it really helpful to have a discussion with um, my patients about chronic cat B because we have the largest population of chronic hepatitis B in Australia, up here in the Torres Straits. What a great sounding resource. So following on to from leadership and the theme of women um, leading, um, I'll share the resource, a book called How Remarkable Women Lead. Um, Great book and worth um, reading if you are interested with all sorts of interesting stuff by a woman called Joanna Barsh. Um, And yeah, I'll leave it at that and hand over to Ash. I've been preparing a webinar for the rural faculty and as part of that preparation I logged on to the uh, OzPath education section. So OzPath is the new ANSPATH, which is uh, basically the Australian and New Zealand, uh, well, it was Australian New Zealand Professional Association for Transgender Health and now it's the Australian Professional Association for Trans Health. And they have an education module for GPs. I'm not sure if we've spoken about it before, but I actually have done the whole training online module and it was really, really good. Um, I've done the gender training before with ACON and that was probably about five years ago and had been working with some trans people particularly adolescents, and this education module has been kind of updated as things have moved a lot in that sphere and there's some amazing videos and some excellent resources and it really helps you to have a good overview and think about how you approach your practice in terms of the whole of the practice approach, in terms of how to be more sensitive to the needs of our trans population and some up-to-date research, particularly in in children and adolescents. So it's definitely worthwhile doing. Well, it seems like we've come to a natural finish. Thank you so much, Alison. It's been just so wonderful learning a little bit about your um, your practice and who you are. And I must say, I'm completely inspired by you. And thank you so much for coming on Just a GP um, and telling us. Thank you so much, Charlotte, Beck and Ash for having me. It's been such fun.